This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode is a first-time co-host, our fellow Commander Karen Kutkowitz. Karen, I mean, it's been a weird year. You and I have met one time. You actually came to my studio, also known as the addict of my home, um, my home office, and you sat in on our interview with the Coast Guard Commandant when he was talking about the IUU strategy. They they rolled it out actually on the Proceedings Podcast. So welcome. It's fantastic to have you for this show, which is a Coast Guard themed show. Thank you, Ward. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm very excited to have Cody and Evan here today as, you know, might as well go start with the Commandant and then uh, go to two brilliant junior officers to have in our company. We're hitting both ends of the spectrum here. So let's tell the audience a little bit about your background. What were some of the high points before you joined the Naval Institute staff? Uh, well, I've spent seven years at sea, so that's obviously the high point of my career. Uh, served on high endurance cutters before they got commissioned, and then recently I was operations officer of the Polar Star, uh, where we go to Antarctica and do Operation Deep Freeze every year, doing uh, facilitating sea lift to and from McMurdo Station, which is the Coast Guard and only American, basically, outposts in Antarctica. So uh, I'm an icebreaker sailor, polar latitude sailor, but I'm also a public affairs officer by trade. So coming to the Naval Institute has been a, a dream, and this fellowship, I'm just learning so much. So you've been with us since, remind me, August, September timeframe? When did you get here? I got here in August, so about hit my six-month mark and so, uh, yesterday. And you'll, you'll be rolling in... Midsummer, I mean, it's, it's happening faster than we, we realize. Right. Um, I should be getting orders in the next month. Uh, so if my detailer is listening. I'm waiting for your phone call <laughs> for the <laughs> 04 slate. So I'm here in Annapolis, and then we'll see where, where we go from here. Again, this has been a weird year because, as we've mentioned a number of times on the show, we've been working remotely. Um, so here we are doing Hollywood Squares on Microsoft Teams. As we said, you and I have only seen each other in person one time. And so hopefully we'll all get vaccinated and be, you know, have this thing behind us in the springtime because springtime at the Naval Academy is, is pretty cool, especially like commissioning week and the Blue Angels and all kinds of stuff. And we do a lot of different events at the Naval Institute at our headquarters at Beach Hall. So I'm hoping that we're able to do that in person. We did not last year. Last spring was kind of a bust um, for the Naval Academy and for us as well with respect to those things. So I'm hoping before you do roll that we get back to some, you know, use of the Naval Institute at, at its, uh, you know, full up and ready kind of st stature. But we'll have to see, I guess, right? 
Um, so in any case, why don't we go ahead and introduce our guests? So it's interesting though, Ward, because I've actually been working with you for six months and I've seen and talked to our guests today more often than not because uh, the Polar Star shares peer space with the Coast Guard Cutter Healy. And so Cody and Evan were uh, ensigns and Lieutenant JGs on the Healy when uh, I was in Seattle as well. So uh, a lot of mentoring between uh, cutters and different events. So it's wonderful to have them on the show. So uh, they were both deck watch officers on the Coast Guard Cutter Healy. Evan short toured, if you will, after the fire on board Coast Guard Cutter Healy. Uh, you can check out USNI News for more information on that, or we can talk about that more in the podcast if you want to go into detail on that. And now, Evan, what is your current job at uh, in DC? Thanks for having me on the podcast, and it's a pleasure to be here. My current job is um, serving on the Coast Guard's Data Readiness Task Force. It's an inaugural group focused on implementing data science practices um, uh, across the entire enterprise. How, it's asking the question, how can the Coast Guard begin to treat data like an asset to maintain like a ship or an aircraft um, to quickly answer operational questions? Um, currently, I'm helping to support um, COVID vaccination efforts. And a lot of things that Evan just talked about, he uh, did a paper and was got third place in a Coast Guard essay contest in 2018 when he was a first-class cadet, uh, which is quite amazing, and has since done a TED Talk. That was also fun to watch. I didn't know if you knew that, Evan, that I watched you on that. Um, and then also with us today is Cody Williamson, uh, Lieutenant JG as well, and he is the Assistant Logistics Officer up at Sector Northern New England, uh, our Coast Guard base up there in Portland, Maine. So how are you today, Cody, and how is this new job treating you coming off the big red ship onto the other coast? I'm doing great here in Portland, Maine. I love Maine. I'm from New England originally, so, you know, uh, what they say about New Englanders, but um, I'm having a great time. I'm the Assistant Logistics Officer for Sector Northern New England. And um, coming off of a ship and going into sector logistics is, is a bit of a different world, but I'm having a really great time. And coincidentally, I am also working uh, COVID vaccine logistics and rollout. So it's funny how both Evan and I happen to be working this common problem. Uh, so if, if it, our listeners are looking at their January issue of Proceedings... Uh, it's on starts on page 62. How did you come up with this idea about Polish securities uh, cutters and our evolving Arctic? Did the two of you just start brainstorming one day? Uh, how did this uh, happen? Evan, you want to start? We had the opportunity to go up and serve together when uh, we deployed to the Arctic in 2019. And Cody and I quickly became fast friends. We're both from New England, so cut from the same cloth. And we started asking questions about, okay, the Coast Guard is going to be ready to roll out this next generation of poor security cutters. And I think it's pretty set in stone that we're going to be getting these holes at some point in the next few years. But we started asking questions along the lines of, now that you have these holes, like what do the supporting logistics look like? Like how do you enable a ship to do not only scientific research, but um, search and rescue potentially environmental response, just a whole host of missions that icebreakers aren't traditionally meant to do yeah. uh, on top of that traditional research mission. And I mean, a lot of this was just kind of born out of brainstorms of what would we do? We're, I'm the qualified, he's my break-in, 
what would we do right now if someone just said like that they got into the ice, had an oil spill, and we as the Coast Guard operational unit, what are we going to do? It's like that's that's a tough problem in, in a complicated environment such as the Arctic. A lot of people have a lot of time on watch together thinking about these big ideas, but to take the leap of saying, here's the ideas that we have in this what-if statement, um, how did that go from your ideas onto writing together and submitting it to Proceedings Magazine for publication? Well, I think a lot of that uh, goes to Evan. Uh, Evan's a big go-getter and really likes to uh, likes to work through problems and and kind of present solutions. If it's not the right one, it's at least moving the conversation forward. So Evan came to me and he's like, I know you're as crazy as I am. Do you want to go write an article in your free time in a great city uh, like Seattle? Um, but he's a great, he's a great partner. We worked together on the ship really well. And it was just kind of like, okay, we're, we've been seeing some, some things we want to talk about. We love the Arctic. It's a, it's an amazing place. And I think we got some stuff to say. So the, the article starts, um, with the premise, the Arctic is one of the most operationally complex maritime regions of the world. The Coast Guard's newest icebreakers will need to balance national security statutory and scientific research missions. So frame the problem for us. If you look back historically over the last 20 years or so, Healy has been the primary Coast Guard asset that operates at high latitudes, um, at least in the American Arctic. And the majority of that mission has focused on predominantly naval research. Um, So how do you start to build up more accurate climate models, oceanographic models, um, and then just another whole portfolio of scientific research? But the conversation that surrounds the, the Arctic is quickly evolving as climate change plays out, unfortunately. As waters uh, warm up, fishing populations or fish populations are drifting further and further north. It's just an evolving climate. And if there's less ice, theoretically, um, shipping channels could start to open up as soon as like 2030. So that starts to open up conversations about more like traditional Coast Guard statutory missions search and rescue, environmental cleanup, and then um, national security are all very big conversations right now. The nature of the mission is starting to shift with this next generation of icebreakers. I think part of it too for us was we have, we've learned academically about the changing Arctic, about these problems. Um, But then our deck watch officer training is, it's like you can't sit for your board until you've seen enough ice. And that's that's a, a, a interesting step in the qualification process that you have to learn the the scientific development of ice from when it's just small grains of, of frozen you know water to the point where it's vast flows. And if we have to learn this, any other ship in the Arctic is also going to have to learn this on top of all the economic and political challenges that come with this particular part of the maritime world. Seeing the uh, logistics up there, Cody, uh, is that something that kind of helped you in your new role in logistics that you were thinking about these these problems already? Well, so um, I served as the marine science officer in my second year, which was really an amazing experience. 
to to work with these scientists and and discuss their mission goals and how we're going to get there. But a lot of it is just logistics. How how are we going to get their equipment from Seattle onto the ship in Dutch Harbor? How do we get people off in emergencies and different things like that? So one of the one of the most challenging and, and fun parts of the marine science officer job was actually how do we work these very challenging logistical relationships in the in the Arctic. And that definitely was when I saw it on my my pick list, like a logistics job, I was like, well, that's was fun fun as a marine science officer, so I may as well try it in a in a different realm. And it's just it's such a crazy environment to operate into, like particularly Dutch Harbor, which is this metropolis for that part of Alaska. Um, booming metropolis. It's massive, like a whole three thousand people or so. Um, it's a nine hundred mile flight from Anchorage and a small um, turboprop plane, and you're flying next to volcanoes. So if one of them is happen just happens to be erupting, which is a fairly regular occurrence, like you can't get into the islands. In order to get our uh, research equipment out there, we'd have to barge it out a couple months ahead of time. If you miss that date, it might not show up in time. So just the it's much more complex than just loading everything up onto a truck and it shows up two days later. And then there's there, a big thing that we talked about well, uh, within that realm is like just cost is is there's there's such a huge cost to get things into the Arctic um, not even the Arctic. We're talking about just the Bering Sea, the ent- the entrance to the Arctic, you know. Um, but that is in part part of the problem is there's not a lot of ways to get into the Arctic, and so it all has to come from far away with <laughs> barges, planes, different different things. So um, yeah, just like our our from day one on Healy, you really see like wow, this is a challenging challenging place to operate in. Well, the article does a nice job of describing some of the other challenges, connectivity and other things like that. Can you can you tell the listener about some of those things that are specific to working in those high latitudes? Cody and I both served as the communications officer during that time. And I think the commandant pointed out in one of his speeches, uh, I think maybe last year or either this year, when Healy goes above a certain latitude, we just lose connectivity entirely. That's, I think, also a problem down in Antarctica. I think you can confirm, ma'am. But, you know, it's the 21st century. You would expect to have some level of internet on the entire face of the planet. But when you're relying off of really prohibitively expensive satellite communication systems, like getting even really low bandwidth systems is just not super realistic unless we're willing to shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars. That seems to be sort of a basic thing, though, right? I mean, we we have a seven hundred twenty-four billion dollar. I know you guys aren't DoD, but you know we have large budgets for you know Homeland Security and for DoD and for whatever. So if the Healy cannot talk to anyone or receive emails or download anything for, and you say, or I guess this is what the commandant said, upwards of a week. And then you also mentioned, and this is pretty remarkable, that a small swell could disrupt connectivity when you're using satellites because of the shallow angle you're operating up there. A single degree of elevation is is all you got above the horizon. Um, so, you know, sometimes what I'm hearing, whether it's cutter ops or icebreaker ops, you guys are sort of alone and unafraid. And so it just seems like a very lonely place at times. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. We um, you hear about icebreaking in the days of old, and it was very isolated, and it can still somehow feel like that. We're still as isolated in you know the 21st century, um, but it it there, these solutions are out there, and that's kind of one of the things that we were speaking to in our article is is that. The technology to to allow Healy to allow a polar security color cutter to have communications in the Arctic doesn't need to be invented. It just needs to trickle down to the operators in in this remote place. Um, and you know, I don't know if it's our place to speak how that happens, but it's like it you, it's hard to see the world outside the Coast Guard be so advanced and developing very rapidly I and mean, be like, how do we, how do we get that for us? So the National Defense Authorization Act of 2021 has money specifically allotted for new cutters uh, connectivity, uh, specifically in the high latitude. So uh, the Healy and the Polar Star are not going to be part of that, but uh, there is, they, they know that it is an issue and money is being, devoted to it, but it's not right now. And I think that's one of those things is what, what is the priority? And if the, when the new polar security cutters come online, we have to have the connectivity to be that security cutter, to have that calm suite, um, to be that national security presence up both in the Arctic and the Antarctic. So let, let's explain to the average listener, cause we, we don't have a huge Coast Guard audience, um, but folks listen to every episode. So what is the security cutter? Where does it fit in the, the fleet? What is it bigger, smaller? You know, let's, let's walk the audience through some of the basics here. And then after that, if we can frame the problem more deliberately that we're addressing here. So um, the Polish security cutters are a new type of, uh, or the, the newest icebreakers being created by the Coast Guard. And we have Healy, which is a 420-foot scientific icebreaking platform. It's a medium icebreaker that it's it's set up with labs. It's set up with space for scientific birthing. Its purpose is to go up into the Arctic and facilitate um, scientific research. Then we have a heavy icebreaker, which is the Polar Star, that goes down south and supports the McMurdo Station and the operations there. But that's primarily helping their scientific mission. And those two ships are total outliers compared to the rest of the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard has a couple other classes of what we call high endurance cutters or national security cutters. And those are designed to primarily conduct law enforcement or more intelligence focused missions like um, the Commandant's IUU fishing mission. Icebreaking is traditionally not a national security driven mission. Um, it doesn't really mesh well with illegal fishing or um, intelligence collection. We are just a bunch of hippies in comparison to the rest of the Coast Guard in some ways. We geek out on you know, discovering a new species of jellyfish um, in comparison to uh, drug interdiction. Those two communities' DNA are starting to merge together into the polar security cutter. I would say that's the best way of describing it. And that's the issue that we're talking about. You're talking about a community that traditionally is doing jellyfish discovery. And, and, and now you have, because of the climate science evolving picture, you, you could be wrong verb, but also you're stumbling into 
a, a, a more tactically focused mission. That's correct. And a community that's traditionally been fueled by other driving factors to be thrust into this kind of new law enforcement, national security, environmental protection type missions, that's a bit daunting without a robust support network to support the platform itself, at least from from what Evan and I were seeing on Healy. And that's a great point that you make in your article um, about the culture of Arctic innovation and then the people subheading. I mean, if you are traditionally an icebreaker sailor, maybe you're on a 140-foot um, icebreaking tug in the Great Lakes, and then you make the transition over to one of our medium or high uh, heavy icebreakers, you're not getting that experience on security. Let's take Polar Star, for instance, that I have experience on. We didn't even have a law enforcement team. So training that type of crew to be a security platform is a big hurdle, but something that the Coast Guard is going to need to be able to do in the next four years, because that's when the first national security cutter should be coming off the line. So, you know, I'm thinking in terms of how Navy deployments go, you know, so I'm home ported in San Diego or Norfolk. I go away for upwards of 10 months. So if I'm on Healy, where am I home ported? And when I go somewhere, how long do I go? So Healy is home ported in Seattle. And we leave it, it. It's really driven by who wants to use Healy for science. But it's typically been about four months leaving in July, coming back in October, November time frame. Um, we go up, we can do two to three scientific missions. That time period is really driven around the ice minimum, uh, the time in the year when the ice has retreated farthest north, which gives us the most accessibility to previously unaccessible areas in the water for them to drop science stuff, pick up soil and rocks and all, anything they want to look at. But that's that's what Healy's mission is driven around. It's around the natural you know, formation of ice and the availability of science. But with a security cutter, it may not have as much reliability or much reliance on that ice minimum. I mean, so who are you working for with, partnered with? Uh, are these agencies that, that jump aboard and, and come up with these scientific mi- missions like NOAA or uh, you know, Oceani- Oceanographic Institutes, or is this in-house Coast Guard expertise? It's a pretty diverse portfolio of folks that will come on board. Typically, it's folks like um, Naval Research Labs, uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, Scripps. It's a combination of government um, agencies along with more traditional academic uh, institutions. You do have ship riders as well to come and learn the Arctic in addition to the science part of it. Um, I know that there is a NOAA officer who came on board. What other type of people come on board to do other types of research or um, they're trying to get Arctic experience on board the Healy? Yeah, it's pretty common to have folks from other military branches. So we've had some folks from the Navy in the past. Um, We've had folks from um, specifically the National Ice Center, which does a lot of our ice forecasting. Uh, Cody mentioned how reliant we are on the ice cycle as well. Using satellite imagery or interpreting satellite imagery is a bit of an art. So having folks on board that are really good at looking at that imagery helps for us to make um, operational decisions about which scientific 
um, research evolution we might do first as compared to third or fourth. But we've even had folks from foreign navies on board before. And what's you talk about I, lots of people do missions in the Arctic, um, but there's something unique. Um, and, and ma'am, you'll also probably be able to speak to it about being completely in the ice, uh, like, you know, a hundred degrees around you, you are in, um, like heavy ice conditions. And that is an experience in the Arctic that a lot of sailors don't get to see, even if they're in near ice conditions or the marginal ice zone. And that's the value that ship riders and different government agencies get if they're coming for more of the trying to obtain a tactical maritime um, understanding. And it's it's just, it's really a, an amazing environment to operate in. Yeah, so I'd say the only Navy folks that do that on a routine basis are submariners, right? Uh, and when they bust through the ice, um, certainly an aircraft carrier or a destroyer or a cruiser would not want to be surrounded by ice. That would be bad. In terms of the program of record, Karen mentioned the NDAA. How many polar cutters are we getting and when? Ward, that is a, a great question. So far, we have funding for one and long lead time for two. We're hoping for uh, three heavy and three medium with a total of six uh, with the start of being commissioned in 2024. And they're going to be a, a little more than uh, 430, what is it, 440 feet? So about the size, a little bit bigger than um, the Healy is now. So you guys do a nice job. You've talked about the climate change challenges, and then you also talk about some of the other complexities of the mission and how it's getting even more complex. Can you describe some of that? I mean, you talk about some Russian fishermen that were stranded and some other things that are going on. It's sort of the, the second and third order consequences of more of this water space being available because of climate change. So talk to us about some of those things. It, it really is just based on increased traffic in the Arctic and all the consequences that come with mariners in an environment, you know, and it, and all the other Coast Guard statute missions start to fall into place where, you know, we talk about the Russian fishermen getting rescued because they were trying to they had access to a resource they were trying to get as much as they could but actually got locked in by the complexity of the environment and required a rescue within you know w avoiding catastrophic outcomes and um we explore the potential of a oil spill in the arctic and how you deal with art or oil that is in and around the marginal ice zone how do you separate it from the the solids in the water so some pretty crazy people go up into the arctic and one of the examples is this guy mike horn who did this really incredible expedition a year and a half ago or so where him and this guy borge ausland skied across the entire arctic in winter so started on the alaskan side um skied across the ice to Norway. And there was a pretty dramatic rescue there at the end where their food supplies were starting to run low. They had been encountering pretty brutal conditions, understandably, the entire way. So there was a ice-rated vessel from Norway that got underway and um, launched a pretty aggressive rescue effort at the last minute to try to pick them up. So it kind of asked the question of like, well, what if you had started from the other side and was coming to the American side instead of Norway? Well, 
would we as the United States be ready to conduct that sort of a rescue mission? Yeah, and, and that's just another another person up in the Arctic is uh, adventurers. You know, like it, you get you get the whole plethora of people as as the Arctic becomes a place that is now accessible. Um, we actually had the opportunity to to meet Mike Horn when he was in Nome. Right, we we were going in on the small boat uh, for our like twelve hours of liberty that we got in Nome. Um, and Evan, we're sitting there like, in our Mustangs, and Evan like hits me on the shoulder. He's like, "That's Mike's horn ship," and I was like, "No way! Who? <laughs> Who's that?" Um, and he explained to me that he's this kind of famous adventurer that, and um, you know, he seeks out these challenging things like like skiing across <laughs> the sea ice of the Arctic. Um, and Evan was just like, "All right, well, let's go talk to him." <laughs> And so we walked over to his ship and just kind of and talked to him about this concept that he was doing. And it was all all about the fact that the Arctic is like a, like that to him, to a, a just an adventurer. It's like, yeah, that's a place I can go now. I can I can go into. And that that whole mindset is going to just just draw more and more people. Well, how, how long did that trip take up to the point where, where he uh, needed to be rescued by the Norwegian Navy? But. How long does it take to do what he was trying to do? Oh, geez. Honestly, it was like three months or something like that. It was a stupid amount of time. <laughs> so he had all the food he needed and he had a tent and he had everything to do that for three months? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally self-sufficient. Did you feel uh, when you were up in the Arctic that you were modern day explorers? I mean, like a little bit in it's just an environment I've never seen before. Never, you know, it, with all the stuff you do at the Coast Guard Academy with different trainings and stuff, it nothing can really prep you to be like, okay, you're going to be hitting this ice at, you know, at high, these high enough speeds when you're trying to learn how to drive the ship. Right. And, um, the, just the way where a Lofcon is, everything starts rattling and I remember Captain Talapa, when I was breaking in, he it, stuff starts shaking and I would come off the throttles and he'd turn to me and be like, what are you doing? He was like, hammer down, keep it on. He's like, you're not going to break this ridge if you don't. Pa-. And I was like, what? Like, it just was in a brand new world of ship driving, of operating, and that you have to be as strong as the environment is. So, um, so what what is that like? Is it is it noisy? I mean, you mentioned the shaking. But are you feeling like the bow is going to smash in, or or is it just initially disconcerting? But once you and what what is the actual motion? Do you ride up on the ice and then smash through it? Or are you breaking it directly right on? I mean, what's what's because I what I've seen of the icebreakers is they're kind of bulbous bows, you know, and it looks like the design is not to like smash it like an axe, but to drive up on it and and, and smash down on it. So what's that? How does that work? It was a little bit different than uh, Polar is. It has more of an ice knife that's designed to kind of slice it and kind of push it down underneath the hull. Whereas Polar, it is more designed to ride up onto the ice and use its massive weight to crush it, which is why it's like considered more, Exactly. So that's why it's considered a heavy versus a medium, just different ice capacities. The way that the propulsion plants between the two work is a little bit different. This is just kind of going down a nerdy rabbit hole, but I would say it allows Healy to be a little bit more precise when we're driving science evolutions in that 
we have two massive electric motors, one of which caught on fire this past year, which was a little bit of a bummer. But that really allows you with to go from 100% ahead to 100% back without really thinking about the propulsion implications, I guess, or like less yeah, so we compared don't, we don't to where there's a gear. gearbox. Exactly. So Polar Star, for example, has, or the Polars have this massive reduction gear. So if you're backing and ramming, which is exactly what it sounds like, where you're just hammer down for a little while and just beating like a sledgehammer on ice you have to think about okay i'm driving at 60 miles an hour down the interstate i need to use the brakes before i throw it into uh reverse whereas healy can kind of do that mid-motion so cody can you talk about you just talk about being in a locked con uh for maybe some aviators out there what does uh, a locked con mean and what is it like uh up there yeah so well i love a loft con i it was definitely when we when we so we switched to ice was it seven tenths right evan yep yeah so when it when it was more than seven tenths so if you look around you that seven more than seven out of ten of the of the water around you is covered in ice and you get a loft con because you need a 360 degree view of the ship um and if you Really, so you can look behind you and see if the ice is closing behind you, because um, that means you are in ice under pressure and that you could get blocked in, and you just need to be aware of that. Um, it also helps you look forward and see ridges and see possible plinias, which are like open water or little pools of open water within the ice, which are good to target if you want to find the path of least resistance. But the the regular bridge is you know you're about mid-level on the ship where all the regular navigation goes on and then you climb up the mast um and go to a separate conning station that's almost the almost the highest point in the ship other than it's, it's a treehouse yeah well or and that's the thing uh, on on healy it's yeah like yeah like a tuna towel but on healy it for some reason is all wood up there the paneling and everything and so it literally feels and looks because it's a rectangle like almost like a cartoonish style <laughs> treehouse um and you're up here and you're you from uh, as a conning officer where you're usually giving conning commands like helmsman left full rudder all ahead you know and things like that you go from from conning to hands on the throttles hands on the helm making these minute adjustments for driving through the ice because you need to constantly be adjusting your speed and it's just a it's it's such a drastically different experience of like wow i am driving a 420 foot icebreaker from the top of the ship and it's it it's like you're picking the path and it's um i don't know it's i loved it I so, love so it. how high how high are you up above the water Honestly, about a hundred feet off the water. Hundred feet, okay, that's up there. And when you climb up there, are you outside? Are you like a rung ladder to go up there, or and do you have to like hook in like a safety harness or something? Or because I'm kind of freaking out already thinking about this. You're an aviator. You I like know, to but I'm in a nice, I'm in a nice cozy airplane with an ejection seat. You know, <laughs> um, that's the irony of flying around at thirty thousand feet is you don't really have a sense of like height. And if you put me on top of the Empire State Building, or I went to the, up the Capitol Dome before, back when it was still open to the public, you know, um, it freaked me out. It truly freaked me out. 
And so, yeah, I, I have 2,800 hours in tactical jets and I'm afraid of heights, it turns out. So if you're going up there for LOFCON, how do you get up there? Do you climb a, you know, is there a, like a ladder up there, uh, at, you know, like a rung ladder, you know, and, yeah, and is yeah. it outside? No, well, I mean, you can go from outside, but it, it's an it's an encased, um, and in Healy, it's a bit more spacious. I know on the Star, it, it gets pretty tight to go up through all those. And there's like, do you, did you ever count, ma'am, how many there are? Uh, I did not, but it was uh, seven different levels above the bridge. Yeah. Um, so it's it's about on the Polar Star. It's also about a hundred feet above the waterline. Uh, it just feels like a lot more, um, but it's. I think it's a great ship handling experience for especially junior officers um, who are coming through the ranks and you're actually physically driving the ship instead of giving commands to the person who's driving the ship. So it's a fascinating experience. So obviously up in ice conditions, there's no sea state, right? I mean, it's not like you're dealing with waves or are you dealing with waves? No, there's, there's, there's no sea state. It's completely okay. knocked down within, I don't even know, like 50 feet into the ice, the waves just dissipate. Because I'm the other thing I'm thinking, if if it's like you know, Beaufort State ten, and you're up there, you, you'd probably be rocking and rolling pretty pretty good. So it's interesting. Um, the Polar Star just came out with a press release because they're in the Arctic this year, um, and they're they're in the winter, and so the sound of ice breaking, they're comparing it to what the Healy hears in the summer versus what winter ice breaking is like. And because the ice is so much more brittle, it's like a car crash all the time, Ward. So Evan and Cody and I understand what the, it sounds like, but to the listener, it sounds like a car crash or screaming or nails on a chalkboard all the time. For, uh, for weeks on end. In the ice. How do you sleep? Yeah. How, do you, how do you not go crazy? Well, also you remember that it's either total daylight or total darkness because you're in such high latitude so it, it throws off your entire circadian rhythm anyway so you just get used to it i remember when i was uh, uh breaking in they uh one of the the ensigns that at the time told me he's like y- y- you can hear the ship like and i was like what do you mean he's like no you can just hear when something's some, something's not wrong or, or something's not going right right and I didn't believe until like after the fact. And if you are cruising in ice for so long and if it all of a sudden just like you don't hear that 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 droll, you're like, did we just hit like a ridge? Like, what? Are, why are we stopped? Why are we actually stopped? You know, like or you can hear the engines moving hard and you're like, oh, we're backing and ramming. We were we were rocking and rolling like smooth as, you know, smooth as butter. But now we're now we're uh, <laughs> like I don't know, but you can you can tell you the, you're you just get so adjusted to it and you are like aware of the of the noises of the ship the the way it moves through ice, especially from like the ice pilot perspective. Like you know who's on the throttles at any given point, so it's like oh man, you just hit a pressure ridge a little bit harder than you should have. Uh, you're probably getting a phone call right now. So there's kind of that element there too. So Evan, let's uh, and, and Cody too. Let's go into this part of your article when you talk about when something goes wrong, help is thousands of miles away, and it's not thousands of miles away just in general, but logistically, there's ice, there's islands, there's all these things. And so Evan, you were on board for the fire this past uh, fall. So tell us where you were, um, how it happened, and your involvement uh, on board Healy. 
Yeah. Um, so we were about eight hours. We, we had left Seward about eight hours before um, the fire played out, and which is honestly like a pretty good location for it to happen. Seward is on the southern side of Alaska. It's in a pretty protected area um, directly south of Anchorage. And a large um, electrical fire played out in one of those two um, electric motors. It was a pretty textbook response from the crew. Thank God no one was hurt. Um, and it was about a 25-minute evolution. And just given where the fire was, it was a mission-canceling uh, fire for us. It's in such a sensitive part of the ship that there's just really no way to repair that quickly. Um, during the response itself, I was on the medical party, so thankfully no one was hurt. Um, but it's definitely like a weird position to be in, like sitting by, like, oh, if anyone gets hurt right now, I, I know who that person is, um, which is definitely like a little bit more personal. Um, but I think that Healy is down in Dry Dock right now in Vallejo. They are um, right around the time, like wrapping up their um, time down there and should be heading up to Seattle here pretty shortly after a pretty long repair period. And like, I, I mean, I wasn't on the ship, but the first thing I think of is like, what if you, if you lost both main motors, it's like, wh who are you going to call at that point? You know, it, it's, I, I mean, Evan probably had to actually live it, but I, as I sit here and think about my time, I'm like, man, I don't even like who, who, what are our options in, uh, you know, the Bering Sea, going up to the arctic you know i probably dutch harbor but it's just like those those unknowns that that we don't i mean i know we're, we're still young junior officers but like to not necessarily know where that's where that solution comes from or the aid comes from is is one of the tough parts definitely and something that we got really lucky with is that the fire happened in open water like if we had had that fire when we were in that thick pack ice we just straight up wouldn't have had the power to get out of the ice so if you had procrastinated or drawn out that fire for another three weeks, there's no real telling what that response would have looked like. And thus a need for an article like yours. <laughs> exactly. So it was, um, yeah, I guess well-timed in that respect. So when you were at the Coast Guard Academy, did you take a class about the Arctic? And how did you grow interested in either going on the Healy or going to the Arctic um, in general? Cody? Well, I, I'm a self-proclaimed nerd. Um, I was a marine environmental science major, and they just hearing they said Healy does scientific missions, and I said, okay, well, that's what I want to do. I guess like that's I don't. It's not my choice. It's been decided. <laughs> but um, as far as an Arctic specific class, no, I, I didn't. I mean, we took some um, physical oceanography type classes where we learned about ocean circulation in the Beaufort Sea. Um, but as far as actual understanding of that specific climate, I never had an interest in it. It just was the pure, the uniqueness of an icebreaking mission paired with the, the only like ocean science operations going on in a Coast Guard cutter um, really just meshed as something as that I really wanted to be a part of for me, at least pretty much the same, same story for me. I studied electrical engineering, so I wasn't quite, um, involved with like environmental science courses. I didn't take any polar science courses, but yeah, I just kind of stumbled into it. It sounded like a really unique opportunity, like having the chance to step foot on 
like Arctic sea ice. That's just like once in a lifetime. So if you have that opportunity, it's just like you have to put your name in a hat for that. Well, I think, Evan, when we were there, too, there was the um, Arctic Council or something like that, that that had met at the Coast Guard Academy. And that that was I knew I know that we like Arctic conversations were going on at the academy. And so that's that was another piece of it, too. It's like, OK, Arctic is it, it, it's becoming a conversation piece and in increasing uh, interest in the Coast Guard and the in the maritime world at large. So I'm sure that kind of played into it. It was like, yeah, this would be this would be good to to dip a toe into. As we've mentioned, uh, we're getting our first PSC if if the program of record comes together in 2024. And your final paragraph sort of frames a, a, a warning. And so you say, without quick action to properly support the PSCs, they will not be the, quote, one platform conducts all, end quote, assets that the Coast Guard has dreamed of. Expand on that just a, a, a little bit. I think we're in this race against time right now as the Coast Guard in that we have approximately four years before our first hull comes online. There's a lot of work to be done in that time frame in terms of how are we going to build out officer specialty codes? How are we going to build out career tracks that enable folks to get in a variety of experience, really, um, not only just with ship driving and like national security missions along with icebreaking missions, but um, how do you start to like build up that holistic strategic understanding of like everything that's playing out in a really complex domain? Um, that takes time. Like creating those changes probably takes about a year at least, and that's fast tracking them. Getting technologies in place, that's a two year solicitation period. So like yeah. four years sounds like a really long time, but it really isn't in the grand scheme of things. So if we yeah. want to, merge together all these really complex missions we can't wait until those first hauls come online and i know i mean we talk about uh people process products coined by evan uh <laughs> but it it's it really is it's like we need to be able to train our people for the complicated maritime relationships that occur specifically in the arctic um we need to improve the way we support these the Polish security cutters in a place with little to no infrastructure where we rely heavily on what the local economies can provide us in terms of services and goods and products is we, we talked a little bit about with communications and things like that, but we need the technology is out there and we need to like be able to utilize it on these new platforms or else we'll be sa uh, sailing without without the full capability that is possible. Well, I love the last sentence of the article. The Arctic is indifferent to whether the Coast Guard is ready for the challenges to come. We must not be. Heavy. That's some heavy stuff. So we have uh, been meeting here today with Lieutenant J.G. Cody Williamson and Lieutenant J.G. Evan Torong discussing their article and proceedings in the January issue titled Polar Security Cutters Will Face an uh, Evolving Arctic. And I can't agree with you guys more. And your ability to write and to take what you are thinking about, standing watch together, and put that pen to paper and submit it to Proceedings Magazine to offer your opinions and your advice to the Coast Guard and to other junior officers 
and people in the decision-making seat, uh, it, it cannot be overstated. So writing for Proceedings, writing for Naval Institute, I really appreciate you guys taking the, the time. You don't have much off time as junior officers, so I really appreciate you taking that precious time and contributing to the progress of the United States Coast Guard, but also our national strategic interests in the Arctic. Thank you so much for having us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. It's fun. Thanks, guys. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>